Philippians 3, verses 8 through 11 is our text this morning. What's great about the New Testament epistles is that they're written not only to instruct us, but they're also written to (coughs) exhort us as well. Each one of them is a specific call to action in one way or another. They're not just philosophical discussions. They're not just historical narratives. Uh, They are pointed, they are personal, and they require a a personal response from the reader. You know, we think of Timothy and the other pastoral epistles, which do instruct in doctrine. They also exhort a specific group in a specific way about physical, you know, real things that, that need to be done. We think of John's letters, where we're very boldly commanded as Christians to walk in the light of the Lord and, and to love others actively. We think of Corinthians, where we're given specific insight and instruction on how to behave when the church comes together. And, and so uh, uh, those sorts of specific uh, exhortations to the readers. And here in Philippians, you know, Paul is instructing and exhorting us as well. He's trying to get across this idea that there's something wonderful and supernatural for our lives through Jesus Christ. Uh, There's a filling and a purpose. There's a completion that brings a great sense of peace and satisfaction as we live our lives as disciples. And so it's a great uh, uh, portion of instruction of what the Lord wants for the average Christian. Um, But what Paul is also trying to get across is the fact that the Christian life requires some things. It requires commitment. It requires endurance. It requires a labor and a pressing and a contending on this side of eternity. Uh, Very plainly, Paul has laid out the goal that God has in mind for each and every one of his people. Our Lord desires that we be people who are not only useful in his kingdom, but also people who are contented and full of love and full of joy. That's God's desire. But that ideal that the Lord has for us cannot happen on its own. It doesn't just happen. Happen. It requires action on our part. It requires that we react to God and answer the call that he's placed on each of our lives to follow him and to submit ourselves under him. It requires that we set aside other pursuits so that we can pursue the Lord. We need to lay aside other burdens and other cargoes that we might take up so that we can carry a cross and a church on our shoulders. This is the Christian life as as far as Paul is concerned. And while we are all interested in the blessings of a life lived in communion with the Spirit of God, uh, we sometimes stay seated when Christ actually comes calling in our lives. It's part of our nature. It's something that we have a propensity towards. But that is not what God wants for us, and that's what we're seeing here. And so for that reason, Paul is writing to Christians to exhort us and to remind us that God's desire for us is that we abound, that we really abound, that we really grow, and that then we go and accomplish His work, that we would become people who rejoice and who testify through our lives with a full confidence in Jesus Christ. The, the point is that we become completed in the Lord, not cultural Christians, but committed Christians who step out into discipleship. And so we see that we have a calling, but then we also know that we do have this bent towards apathy and towards unresponsiveness to God as fallen individuals. And so the way that we reconcile those two things, our calling versus the propensity towards apathy, the way that we discover where we're at in our relationship with the Lord is through personal evaluation of the heart between you and your God, taking a look inside and seeing, okay, where am I at here? 
And, and how can I judge my relationship with the Lord and what kind of progress and what kind of pace I'm keeping with Jesus Christ? And this is exactly what Paul does in verses 8 through 11 of chapter 3. Here they are, they, they read like this. Yet indeed I also count all things lost for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them as rubbish, that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having my own righteousness, which is from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which is from God by faith that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death, if by any means I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. And so here, Paul turns this epistle on himself. As he's wrapping up his uh, discussion to the Philippians and to us, he, he takes what he's been talking about and he turns it on himself and he goes through what we just talked about this morning and he says, look, I want to receive the conforming that Jesus Christ has for me. I want that resurrection power that the Lord has revealed to us. I want what God is offering me. And so where am I at with the Lord? Is that happening in my life? When I look within, have I met my belief in God with action? Have I determined to pursue God or have I not done that? And he turns it on himself and opens up himself so that we can see how this works in the personal life. And in Paul, we just receive a, a wonderful example of the supernatural life that God intends for each and every one of us. And he sets it out in terms that are simple for us to understand. So first of all, verse 80 explains the pursuit. He says, Yet indeed I, count, I also count all things lost for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them as rubbish, that I might gain Christ. The pursuit of the godly life is to know Jesus Christ. Uh, and I'm sure that most of you have heard this passage taught before and it's been explained that the word for knowing there, the word for knowledge, is a very personal word. In fact, it's a word of intimacy. Uh, it's a word of passion and close relationship. And we need to lock into the understanding that life is about my relationship with Jesus. It's about your relationship with Jesus and that's it. In Christ Jesus, all the rest of human living is understood and is empowered and is directed. But the pursuit of my life is to draw nearer to Jesus. And this is the profound building block for anyone who wants to become strengthened in their spirituality. Because Paul, the apostle here, the great pastor, the great teacher, the writer, the leader, he comes... Here And he says, look, the pursuit of life is not to plant churches. The pursuit of life is not academic, uh, economic stability. The pursuit of life is not academic understanding. The pursuit of life is just this intimate relationship with a person, Jesus Christ. And here, as an aging man, Paul's love for God, we see, had not dwindled at all. He says that everything else in his life, everything he'd done, everything he was... It was just refuse compared with what he had with Jesus as a person in a personal relationship. Because in the height of love is found the depth of peace, as the song says. But loving God and having a relationship with him isn't something passive. It isn't something that just happens on its own. It actually requires action. It requires a surrender of all other things. We need to suffer the loss of those other competitors for our devotion. Those other pursuits which attract us, be they good or bad, they need to be replaced with a submission to Jesus Christ. There needs to be an abdication of our own will 
and an acceptance of the will of God. Because then we come to the Lord and we say, okay, Lord, I will abdicate everything in my life to you. And then the Lord says, okay, now I'm going to supply you with tasks and with purposes and with assignments. Because there were things, no doubt, that Paul had been consumed with before his conversion to Christ. Some of them, of course, were evil. Persecution of the church. He was very uh, uh, consumed with that pursuit, wanting to crush this opposition to Judaism. Uh, but some of those things that he pursued, no doubt, were not evil. You know, the, of course, there were some things that were uh, not you know, overtly wicked or things like that. But all of them, he says, were forfeit. At the moment where he became a Christian and, and decided to follow after Jesus, all of that was forfeit. He says, okay, that's all gone. That, that's all over. They were not only just less important to him, they were just jettisoned completely. They're forfeit. They were lost. Uh, so that he could fill that space with the person of Jesus Christ and so that he could submit his entire being and his entire life over to the will of God. Uh, I thought about it this way. You know, when the police are in pursuit of a criminal, everything else is set aside. So if the police are in, on pursuit of, on a, in a high-speed chase pursuing a criminal and they see you roll through a stop sign, they don't stop to give you a ticket, even though you, you know, deserve a ticket. Everything else is set aside. That's their primary focus. I looked it up. The longest police pursuit on record. It happened a few years ago in Europe. It spanned two days, 54 hours, I believe, and it covered over 600 miles uh, as they went through like Poland and Ukraine chasing these guys who had some hostages. But in that pursuit, there was a singular focus for those who were on the chase. Everything else, everything in their schedule, everything in the rest of their duties, everything else was just set aside for the pursuit of uh, these guys. And so each of us needs to evaluate our pursuits this morning. Because whatever we're chasing after in this life matters. Is it something that we've been charged with by our Savior to accomplish? Or are those pursuits something that is competing with our godly devotion and competing with Christ's Lordship in our hearts? You know, what are we chasing after and what's the reason? Is it because we came to the Lord as a bondservant and said, you are the master and I am the servant and I will do whatever you want me to do. And then he said, okay, now go and accomplish this on my behalf. Or is it because we've, you know, decided to carry our cross and carry this other pursuit that we want to establish on our own? Now, Paul goes on and he takes a look at his religious activity in verse 9. He says... His desire is to be found in him, not having my own righteousness, which is from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which is from God by faith. <coughs> Already in this letter, he's addressed the problem of legalism that Christians face and uh, the danger that it is to living a spirit-led life. But again here, he's exposing himself for our benefit. He's evaluating himself to see if his behavior is motivated by any sort of self-righteousness or any sort of pharisaical pride. Remember, Paul says, hey, I was a Pharisee. And uh, at one time in my life, I boasted in that, but I understand that that is nothing now. That was refuse now. And I want to jettison that from my life. And so he now wants to look and see, okay, I want to evaluate my life and see what is my religious activity because self-righteousness and, and pharisaical pride and legalism, those are traits that are innate in us and they need to be rooted out. Because the carnal work of legalism cannot produce righteousness in our lives. It can't. It seems like it does, but it can't. We talked about that before. Uh, righteousness, of course, meaning right standing or equity with God. 
And so to attempt to relate to God through some sort of legalistic performance is a rejection of Christ's efficiency and it's a rejection of what Christ desires to do in our lives. And so we are, we are called to action. That's the thing. You know, we look at the scriptures and we see that a disciple of Jesus is called to action and is called to a lifestyle and is called to certain behaviors and certain activities. We're called to a real commitment. But if those actions and if that commitment isn't found in Christ, if it's found in self-righteousness, if it's found in pride, if it's found in self-glorification, then that's all being done in vain. And so I need to evaluate myself and see if I'm trying to relate to God through legalism or through self-righteousness because those things stop the production of fruit in your life and they stop the, the transforming that God is trying to do because it says, okay, I'm rejecting what you're doing and I'm going to do things on my own and I expect you to be pleased with how great I am. So that is an important evaluation that Paul takes us through there. Verse 10, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death, if by any means I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. The resurrection is not just about passing through death into heaven. That is the most significant aspect of it, I think. You know, <laughs> I'm glad we get to go through death into heaven. But that's not all that the resurrection is. It's, it's not just a future hope. It's also a present power in the life of the believer. It is the resurrection that brings us a sort of invincibility in life that the Bible talks about. You know, where God says, hey, you don't have to be afraid of people that are taking you and are going to martyr you. You don't have to be afraid when people speak ill against you. You don't have to be afraid of this. You don't have to be afraid of that. And it's the power of the resurrection that brings that invincibility into the life of a Christian. It's what transforms a regular person into someone who can joyfully walk even through the valley of the shadow of death. It is the power of the resurrection that makes it possible for us to actually put our faith into real Action, Because our hope is not empty. Uh, our, our hope is sure and it is strong and it is grounded in the fact that God can do whatever he wants. And what he wants is to redeem and to transform and perfect the people of the earth and that he has the power to do so. You know, uh, the Lord is not one of the man-made Greek gods who has certain desires but always, can't always accomplish them. You know, those Greek gods, you know, they were always getting foiled by different situations and by different you know, relationships that they have. The Lord says, yeah, I have the, the following desires, I have the following plans, and I have the power to do them. And I'm giving that power to you. I'm, I'm providing that power for you so that you also can uh, have a hope that is secure and a hope that is powerful and transformative in your life. And so a Christian who is focused on the resurrection power of Jesus is not only going to be full of faith, but they're also going to be very heavenly minded. Because when we focus on the resurrection, it should keep in our minds the reality of the fact that we are going to die one day. Uh, each and every one of us is going to die one day if the rapture doesn't occur. And after that moment, we're going to be finally fully in the physical presence of Jesus. And then our lives are going to be reviewed and our service will be rewarded. And the Lord will look upon us and show us how we pleased him while we were on the earth. And we will be forever with the Lord. And if we're focused on the resurrection and focusing on that future hope, then we're going to understand how important it is how we live here on the earth and how, how much we do want to please the Lord. But not only does the resurrection remind us that we are going to die, but it also reminds us that the person in front of me is also going to die. 
So I'm thinking about this. I'm realizing that the Lord has a plan and that he has conquered death, but, but death is a reality. And so I'm going to die and this person in front of me is also going to die. And if they are without Jesus, then they are going to spend eternity in the lake of fire and that is unacceptable. Uh, and we need to focus on that. And so the resurrection empowers our living and it permeates our thinking with hope and with mission. You know, a belief in the future hope and the stirring to take action, therefore. I believe this about my future, therefore I should be doing these things. I should be reaching out to the lost. I should be uh, expressing a desire to uh, uh, please the Lord. And so when we understand how elevated God's plan for his people is, it should really inspire us. It should stun us that all of this is available not to a few people, uh, but is available to anyone who wants to take hold of the spirit-filled life. But there is a cost to discipleship. It requires something of us. It requires that we unite our hearts with Jesus Christ and follow after him and be conformed to his image. And that image is one of suffering. It is one of self-sacrifice. It is an image of service and of humility. And if we really want to receive the satisfaction and the completion and the fullness of Jesus Christ, then we need to be willing to put belief into action and take a cross on ourselves. That is the path that leads to a life elevated above the natural. You cannot receive the power of God if you're unwilling to be in the presence of God, and to live in the presence of God requires absolute surrender. Um, Abraham believed, and it was accounted for him for righteousness, but that belief would have meant nothing if he was unwilling to go up the mountain and lay his son on the altar and ready him for sacrifice. God brought him to that moment of decision and said, okay, what are you going to do about it? Same thing with Peter. He's a great winner of souls, uh, but that, that transformation that God did in his life required him to actually leave his nets, to actually leave his father, to leave his life and follow after the Lord. The story would have been very different if Peter would have said to the Lord, you know, Jesus, I definitely want to follow you, but it will have to be on weekends. Uh, I want to follow you, but you can have this much of my life to work with, and if it turns out, then we'll see how it develops, and I'll give you a little bit more. And so what's the point? Is the point that anyone who becomes a Christian needs to immediately upend their life and change everything they're doing? No, that's not the point. But discipleship costs something every time. And so we as men of God need to look at ourselves and ask the questions that we see raised here in Philippians. Are we sacrificing anything for the Lord? Are we suffering in any way? Have we answered the call in full surrender? Because to be acquainted with Jesus, the Bible says, is to be acquainted with grief. And while we don't desire to find suffering, we don't desire to find grief for ourselves, we don't go out and look for those things, but this is the arrangement of the Christian life. We cannot have the blessings of Christianity without the expense of our lives and the surrender of them to the Lord. It requires sacrifice because it is through that submission that we discover the fullness of God. It is through that submission that we become conformed to his death and the know the power of his resurrection. And so God is going to bring every one of us into situations where our love for him will be tested, where our lives will display whether we're following with personal passion or whether we're just following with lip service and allowing our love for him to dim. There will be a moment where at our fishing nets, at our tax booth, on the road, on the mountain, where Jesus will come to us and he says, will you pursue me? And in those moments, we need to take the path of a disciple because it is in the pursuit that we find power and peace and purpose. Amen. Go save your car.